0: Thanks for joining us. You're listening to the Life Church Podcast. In these episodes, you will hear encouraging messages from our weekend services. If you'd like to know more about us, watch a live stream, or find the closest Eastern Iowa campus near you, go to lifechurchnow.org. So today, we are concluding our series, Love, Sexuality, and the Way of Jesus. And my prayer has been that through this series, it has um, opened a door. For some of you in this room to actually start having conversations with uh, certain people. Maybe these might be difficult conversations, but that you feel the freedom to start having this conversation and to, to lean into the Holy Spirit and for the Holy Spirit to lead you and guide you and for there to be restoration, healing, and salvation to happen. Amen? And so that's what really where we've been with this series, something I've just been praying about all the whole for the last month about where we've been, and so today, we're just gonna conclude it. Years ago, I heard a pastor talk about an experience he had. He attended a, a support group for a, uh, of men that were struggling with, with sex addiction. And so uh, he, had, he knew the director of this group, of this support group, and wanted to um, you know find out more about it, he was considering starting one in their town, and so he went, just as an observer, while he was there, a man stood up to start sharing his testimony and some challenges that he was having. And so the man stood up, and he introduced himself, and then he began talking. He said, "I was on, the man, not the pastor, but this other man, started talking. He said, I was on my way home uh, from work, and I passed a strip club, and I felt like I wanted to go in. And as soon as he said that, several men, not there's a lot of men there, but several men raised their hands. And the pastor who was observing this saw them raise their hands like, what in the world? Why are you guys raising your hands now? It felt rude to him. Like you're trying to ask the guy a question. He's just barely started talking, giving his testimony, this story. So can you just wait, right? Well, the man continues talking, you know, and he, and he says, you know, so I, I pulled into the parking lot and I went in. And when he said that, more men raised their hands, you know. And so... This pastor's looking around, noticing these men are raising their hands. He's kind of a little bit perturbed by it. The man continues talking, and he goes on to share things that he did and things that he was very upset about. And as he shared those things, more men would raise their hand. At the end of the conversation here, he ends, and he says, so I headed back to my car, and he said, I felt so ashamed, so guilty. And he said, and I felt like there's no way that God could love me. And when he said those words, the entire room, he said 80 plus men, the entire room, the men raised their hands. And so after this all happened, this pastor is just, he's like confused. Why were they raising their hands? And so he asked the director, he said, why why were they doing that? It just seemed so weird. It just seemed inappropriate. The timing didn't seem right. But this guy is sharing, he just didn't skip a beat. He just kept doing it. And the man said, the director said, we have only one rule here at this support group. No one struggles alone. No one struggles alone. And so if you're sharing a struggle and if somebody's sharing a struggle and somebody else has experienced that struggle or has, is going through that struggle, they're supposed to raise their hands. Because no one struggles alone. And I thought, heard that story I have to be honest with you, I love this story because I feel like the church should be a place of raised hands and not so much pointed fingers. And too often, church has been characterized, and this is not true across the board because I think it is somewhat of a characterization. It's all about pointed fingers. But more and more, we need to be that place that we walk hand in hand with people because no one, no one struggles alone. My position has been that all of us have been impacted by sexual sin, whether it's been, you know, like we're all sexually broken, but we're all, we're broken because of our own sin, because of things that we've done, or because of things that have been done to us. Some of you in this room, you have, you have experienced that, and it's very painful and destructive in your life, and it's created a, a just so much dysfunction and brokenness or maybe it's not so much what you've done or what somebody's done to you but it's what somebody that you love is doing and so the truth is when it comes I mean like I think what happens is that we want to make this a conversation about us versus them so we the church is going to talk about sexuality and it's going to be a conversation about us the church God on our side versus those people out there It's an us versus them type of conversation. But the truth is that every single one of us are them. All of us are them. And therefore, we must talk about this with a humble heart. And understand we all need his grace. Amen? Anybody not need his grace? Don't raise your hand. But anybody not need his grace here this morning? (laughs) A few months ago, I was talking, I shared about this uh, Japanese art form called kintsugi. Kintsugi. Where they, um, where they find old pottery, and they, these artisans would get this old pottery and they put it back together, and they, you know, you know seam it all back together, make it kind of like the original. Um, I did this this week actually. I actually broke this p- pitcher and then put it back together. It just don't look at it up close. <laughs> Because it's got, it's got a lot of imperfections. But anyways, the, the art of Kitsugi, the idea is um, that you, the pitchers, or whatever it is, the pottery has been broken, and they put it back together, it's glued back together. Now, our tendencies want to hide the cracks, right? But in Kitsugi, what they do is they, instead of hiding the cracks, they actually accent the cracks with gold, with gold leaf, specifically. And when they do that, this piece of, of, of pottery, whatever it might have been, was valuable when, when it first started. But after it has been put back together like this, it's actually, the value has increased. And I love this image for us as followers of Christ, as Christians. That's exactly what Jesus does in our life. That our lives, we all come to him, we're all them. We are all them, and we all come to him broken. Dysfunctional. Whether it's because of our parents, I mean, even if you were raised in church, you still come to him with brokenness. Right? And then you come to him and he puts you back together and we want to hide it. We don't want people to see the cracks, but those cracks represent the grace of Jesus in our life. We all need his grace and so we should highlight the cracks instead of hide them. That's hard for us, especially when it comes to sexual sin because we have been taught, we've been discipled that if you are struggling with any kind of sexual sin, you need to hide it. Cover it up. Don't let anybody see it. Don't let anybody know it. Keep it a secret. Because if it gets out, it can destroy you. It can ruin your marriage. It can, and it does all those things, right? But when we have an understanding of the grace of Jesus Christ, this is what it looks like. We are, We are actually a work of art in his hands, you and I. Psalm 51 and Psalm 32, they're considered psalms that were written by King David after his his affair with Bathsheba, his sin with Bathsheba. Um, Now what's interesting is that David, he went to extremes to try to cover up his sin. Like he he went to extremes. We'll talk about that in a second. And yet, he was unsuccessful in covering up his sin. It It got revealed. But here's what's Blows me away. And this is kind of why I talk about this pottery, and why I talk about this stuff like this and the gold signs. What blows me away is that it was a really low moment in David's life. And yet, this story of his sin with Bathsheba is, one, is a primary narrative in the story of David. Like God saw fit that this is something that the whole world throughout generations should know about. That David sinned, and he sinned horribly. But God restored him. And in restoring him, actually calls him a man after God's own heart. Or he's called a man after God's own heart. This story is found in 2 Samuel chapter 11. It says, one evening. uh, Let me give you a little bit of context. Um, So verse 1 says, when the kings go off to war, David stayed back. So Immediately, you know how this is already starting. It's already starting with a little bit of disobedience on his part. He should have been on the battlefield, but instead, he stays back. So the immediate next verse says this. One evening, David got up from his, house, his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the, roof, from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. That would have been Bathsheba. The woman was very Beautiful. So one steamy night, David's feeling hot, and he decides he's going to get some fresh air up on the roof. I wonder about this. You know, I think the story is like the the story is just being told very matter of fact, It's history, right? It's just being told matter-of-factly. But I wonder, did David know what he was going to see when he went up on his rooftop? I suspect he did. That's right. I suspect that he knew exactly what time the women bathe. I suspect he knew exactly what he would see. And you know he's on the palace roof, so from his palace roof, he could see all the roofs. Like all the channels are available from the palace roof. We live in a world where it's like one big, gigantic rooftop. And there is sexual temptation all around us. And the messaging that we constantly hear is you've got this desire and it must be satisfied. And here is how it can be satisfied. It must be. Like there's no longer a question whether it should be. It just has to be. And so there's all kinds of of convincing language. You know, different groups that will say this and that about it to try to convince us that this is okay. So David sees this woman bathing, and, and he says to his servant, I love this question, he's her, who is this? Like, who is that woman? And I love how his servant answers the question. He's like, well, that is Bathsheba, and he doesn't end there. He's like, that is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. The wife, like emphasis, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. In other words, what the servant says, David, he's not, she's not your wife. She's somebody else's wife. And yet David doesn't get the point. He still calls her to his, to his palace. He sleeps with her. And then she goes back home and he thinks he got away with it. Until he finds out that she's pregnant. And so he has a decision to make. Do I come clean? Or do I cover it up? And... Can I say, I think when it comes to sexual sin, that is, that is our challenge. Do we come clean or do we cover it up? I just want to challenge all of us in this room along those lines. So what does David do? He decides to, to cover it up. So he calls Uriah home from the war. He thinks, what I'm going to do is I'm going to have Uriah come on leave. He's going to sleep with his wife. His wife is going to get pregnant, or she is pregnant. But he's going to think he got her pregnant. And that she's going to now have his baby, and so everything will be fine. And in David's mind, this is the solution. This is the solution for the problem of sin. Just cover it up. In some ways, pretend like it's not even there. Deflect and do other things so it's not even highlighted right but Uriah he's a man of honor and so he comes home from the battlefield and he refuses to sleep with his wife because his men are out on the battlefield he refuses to pleasure have pleasure when his men are out fighting so he doesn't and so David's plans get dashed and so finally David sends Uriah back to the battlefield and he sends him with a message from the commander can you imagine How low, this! you need to hear this, guys. This is something very important for us to hear because sometimes we categorize our sin. We think, well, that is just way too low. There's no way that there's grace for that. Can you imagine how low it got for David that he actually has a message written out and gives it to Uriah to give to his commander and the message says, send Uriah to the front lines and when the battles of fiercest, withdraw the troops, so he will be killed. Uriah is carrying his own death message. That's how bad it got for David. That's exactly what happens. Uriah' is killed. Verse 27 says, "Then David had Bathsheba brought into the house, and she became his wife and bore him a son." And it looks like they've managed to basically hide all the broken pieces. Looks like they've managed to, you know, dodge a bullet. Nobody's going to notice the cracks. Nobody's going to notice anything went wrong. Like, nobody knows. But God knows. God knows. And you, you, you need to hear that, okay? God knows. latter part of verse 27 says this. The thing David had done displeased the Lord. I'm saying this. I'm reading this text, and I know it can be convicting. It's convicting to me. The intention is not to make you feel bad, but to help us understand that there is a pathway towards restoration and renewal in our lives. Eventually, what happens? God sends Nathan a prophet to David, and confronts him. David comes clean, confesses his sin, he repents of his sin, and uh, he, you know, he comes clean from all of that. And uh, the process of restoration begins. David, you know, is he acknowledges his brokenness and He's forgiven, and eventually David is called a man after God's own heart. And my prayer is that that's what some of you will experience here this morning—restoration, forgiveness, and renewal. Today we're going to look at Psalm 32. This is how David depicts his sin with Bathsheba, and uh, my, my my hope is is that you would see this psalm kind of—I call it like a pocket psalm, a psalm that you can carry around with you, that whenever you find yourself in a place where you need to repent, where you need to ask forgiveness, where you need to to find wholeness, that you can actually pull, like use it as a reference guide, pull out Psalm 32, and it's, it's how you walk through this process of finding restoration, healing, and forgiveness. It's a powerful, powerful tool, because all of us, the truth is, is all of us, all of us need to have this attitude where we're constantly coming to the Lord and saying, Lord, I repent, Lord, I surrender my life to you, Lord, I need it. We just always need to have that attitude, and Psalm 32 can be very helpful for that. So verse one says, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit there is no disease. So, so, So David uses the word blessed twice here, blessed and blessed, and basically the I mean, there's a technical definition, but here in this context, what David is saying is, blessed is the man who sins and God comes and forgives you of your sin. Covers up your sin, is able to to re- restore you back to wholeness. So you're blessed because you have been forgiven. But I want you to notice also that in this passage, David doesn't, you know, p- you know, tippy-toe around. He also uses the word sin twice. Now I realize that as we're, you know, it's kind of, one of the uncomfortable parts about talking about, about the series of sexuality is using that word sin. Like, this is sometimes where people want to draw the line because why are we talking about sin here? The New Testament uses the phrase sexual immorality to help us understand what sexual sin actually is. Essentially, it means any kind of sexual intimacy that is not how God had planned it or how God had purposed it, right? And so we read about this this God design in Genesis chapter two. And then in Matthew, Jesus comes along and he basically affirms what Genesis chapter two is talking about. And essentially, God's plan and purpose for sexual intimacy is sex or sexuality between a man and a woman in the context of marriage, who are married. Anything outside of that would be considered sexual sin. So we use the word sin even though it might feel a little bit uncomfortable to use that word. I think we'd rather use things like words like mistake or indiscretion. I get that. I'm not mocking when I say that. I mean I I get that. It feels better than saying sin. It does. Period. Like Rich, I mean, we all make mistakes. We all have indiscretions. Just call it that. Don't call it sin. It just seems too harsh. It seems too judgmental, it seems too, too difficult. I like what Augustine of Hippo, St. Augustine, says from the fourth century, he says, "My sin was all the more incurable. My sin was all the more incurable because I did not think myself a sinner." At the moment I decided, I'm not sinning or I'm not a sinner. I didn't. Ha- there was no pathway towards forgiveness. There was no pathway towards wholeness. There was no pathway towards healing. My sin was all the more incurable because I did not think myself a sinner. And listen, guys, I I long I long for all of us for you to experience the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in your life. This is my every single day preoccupation when I think about Life Church. Because I've learned, I've learned, my, I've learned in my own life, I've learned I can't work hard enough, I can't be good enough, I can't try hard enough to find wholeness and peace and joy in my spirit. I desperately, desperately need his grace. And I long for all of you in this room to experience that grace, to be set free from your guilt, to be set free from the sin, but for that to happen, the starting point, the, the door that opens that up is... I'm a sinner. I am a sinner. That's hard for us because we'd rather minimize it. We'd rather rationalize it. We want to blame other people, especially when it comes to sexual sin. It's easy to blame other people. I've seen this very a lot in my own experiences with people, talking to people, where somebody will say, Hey, it's not that I don't agree with what you're saying, Rich, but I just wish you knew my story. Like if you had know, if you know my story, you might give me a pass on my, on my sin. You might, you might say, hey, yeah, you know what? You, you, it's okay for you to do that because after all, this is what's been done to you. I constantly hear this, right? Like, uh, you know, if you, if you just, if my husband would just be more, more attentive then I wouldn't have done this thing. My, my wife would have just been more expressive than I would have done these things. And it's easy for us, when, especially when it comes to sexual sin, sex, to, to shift the blame and say it's somebody else's fault. And that's not new. Actually, that starts from the very beginning. Adam did that, right? When Adam and Eve sinned, and God basically confronts Adam, the first thing that Adam says is, it's the woman, <laughs> not me, her. And then, it's not really that, he didn't really, he was blaming the woman, but really he was blaming God because he said, it's the woman you gave me. Like, it's not just her fault, God, it's your fault because you gave her to me. When it comes to this area of our lives, I think it's so easy for us to basically point the finger at God and say, God, it's your fault. Like, it's your fault, you know, you're the one that made me this way. You're the one who gave me these these desires—you're the one who won't answer my prayer. You're the—it's because of you that I'm still single. I can go on. This list can go on. We blame others. We love to blame God in some ways, and we don't say it that way. But it's kind of this dialogue that we have in our head. We do this to, as a way to rationalize and minimize or justify our sin. But listen, freedom can only be found when—and the starting point is when I say, "I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner." And I need you, God. So David talks about what happens to him when he doesn't confess his sin, when he, when he stays unrepentant. Verse 3 says, when I kept silent, like when I didn't confess, when I kept silent, this is what he says, my bones wasted away. Like there's physical, physical consequences to, to, to not confessing sin, to not seeking for, you know, forgiveness, to not repenting. My bones wasted away through my groanings all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. And this is kind of representative of the the emotional state that he's in. He feels heavy. He feels weighted down. So there's emotional consequences as well. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. So David describes this physical and emotional consequences that come with sin. This is especially true when it comes to sexual sin. Like, I think we can sometimes try to justify it. We'll say to ourselves, you know, it's not hurting anybody. Like, what I do in the privacy of my bedroom, what I do in the privacy of my own mind, when it relates to like pornography, it's not really hurting anybody. It shouldn't really affect any other part of my life, and yet it does. Sin has a way of affecting us physically and relationally, and it's not just because the Bible tells us so, it's also what we have discovered as a culture. It's got devastating consequences. <clears throat> One of the things that's interesting about sin, and particularly sexual sin, is that the sin that, co- that kind of creates all this burden, all of this uh, weight that we feel in our lives, that, that sin that makes those things happen, like when I sin and then I feel burdened and weighted down, it's that when I start feeling, it's that very sin that I go to when I start feeling weighted and burdened down. Like it's this cycle that just doesn't want to end. And I find myself going back to it and going back to it. so someone gets caught up in some extramarital uh, relationship. And they really don't like what this, this sin is doing to them. They don't like the fact that they're, that they're cheating. They don't like that they're going through this, this stuff. They feel lonely. They feel a little bit desperate. And they really don't want to be there. They want to get out of that. But then when they feel lonely and when they feel desperate, that's where they go so that they don't feel lonely and desperate. Someone gets caught up in pornography and they too feel lonely and they feel, you know, like disconnected. They don't like the fact that they're feeling that lonely and disconnected. And when they start feeling lonely and disconnected, what do they do? The easiest thing to do is just go to that website. They get that hit hit of dopamine and man, they feel better, at least temporarily. My dad passed away in 2004. He was 61 years old. He was not very old. Um, but he, he died of lung cancer. He was a smoker. He smoked cigarettes since he was nine years old. That's Back in, I guess, when you could, at the age of nine, smoke cigarettes. I don't, didn't realize that. And um, <clears throat> he smoked cigarettes for basically all of his life. And uh, I, when I found out he had cancer, he was living in San Antonio. I was living in California. Uh, I started going to see him a, a couple times to see him. And uh, one time I was sitting there in his living room and we're just... T- chatting, and he reaches, reaches into the pocket, pulls out a pack of Marlboro, um, uh, Pall Malls, the cigarette Pall Mall, pulls out the cigarette, uh, pack of cigarettes of Pall Mall cigarettes, pulls out a cigarette, puts it in his mouth, lights it up, and he's like, he's like, he holds up the cigarette to me, and he says, I hate these things, but I need them. And that's what sin does. It enslaves us. We hate it. But we feel that the only way that we can feel free, the only way we can have peace, the only way we could, you know, feel satisfied is if we engage in it. So there's physical consequences and There's also relational consequences to sin. I don't know if you know this. In fact, I know you know this. It's hard. It is hard to hide sin, especially sexual sin. I don't mean that it's, not, that it's impossible. I'm just saying... It's just hard on us to hide it. We find ourselves, when we do that, we have to, as a, as a defense mechanism, we have to withdraw ourselves away from people. We have to kind of isolate ourselves a bit. And here's what happens. The, the, we think we're trying to protect ourselves. We don't want anybody to know this. It's, it's devastating. And we withdraw from people. And sometimes what happens is we withdrawing from the very people we actually need to be drawing close to. You're a husband withdrawing away from your wife when really you need to draw close to your wife and restore that relationship, but instead we draw away from them. There's relational consequences to sin, especially sexual sin. Sometimes sexual sin will cause us to become critical of others and their sin. I have firsthand experience of this. Uh, 36 years ago, I was in Bible college, and uh, I went to a Bible college that was founded by this high profile television evangelist, had an international ministry. And for several years, during, while I was there in Bible college, he would uh, he was calling out all these other ministers out there of their sin and the things that they were doing. And it turns out that he, too, was exposed for the very same things that he was calling them out on. And so the rage that he was having towards others was simply a reflection of something that was happening on the inside of him. Listen, when you experience God's, when you truly experience, experience the grace of Jesus Christ, I know that there's some of you, I don't believe everybody in this room, but I think there's some of you in this room, you understand what I'm talking about? When you truly experience the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, you cannot help but have compassion and grace towards somebody who's struggling with what you used to struggle with. Because you found yourself in a place where you were helpless and you needed the grace and Jesus steps in and does it for you. And you have compassion. So you find yourself self-righteously judging somebody else. It's probably a pretty good indication that maybe you need to look on the inside. There might be something you need to investigate on in your own heart. Verse 5, he says, then I acknowledged my sin and did not cover up my iniquity. So David's like, okay, I have sin, no, no more hiding it. I'm acknowledging it and I'm not covering it up. Did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And then this is God's response. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. I love this. I hope that you walk, if there's nothing else you walk out of here with, I hope you walk out of here with this idea. It's one of my favorite lines in scripture. God forgives the guilt of my sin. He forgives the guilt. He doesn't just forgive your sin, he forgives the guilt of your sin. We have this false gospel where we say to ourselves, Yes, Jesus paid the price, but I'm on this payment plan for the rest of my life. So somehow or another, if I could just pay enough, I will finally feel free. But in the process, I live with shame and guilt of all the things that I've done. That's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. God forgives not just your sin, but he also forgives the guilt of your sin. There's several words that we use here for forgiveness in this passage. uh, There's forgiven. He uses the word covered. Not count against them. These are words that David is using here to kind of talk about how he's been forgiven of his sin. The word forgiven, the the idea there is to lift a heavy burden and carry it away. I suspect that some of you in this room, you came in, you walked in here with a burden. You walked in with a sin that maybe you did last night. Or you walking in here with just a just a brokenness and a dysfunction that's just been going on for years and years and years, and you've managed to live with it. You've managed to kind of cope with it. You know, you're just going with it, but you you just go to church and hope that you feel a little bit better when you leave. When David uses that word forgiven, what he's saying is that God lifts the burden, and not only does he lift the burden, but he carries it away. So don't sit here this morning and get connected to Jesus and let Jesus begin to fill you and free you to then just walk out that door, and as you're walking out, say, can I have my burden back, please? Because we live that way. That's what forgiveness is. He uses the word "covered," another word that he uses is "covered." Simply means to completely remove from sight. And This idea, like you know, when we—in fact, Heather's sitting back there. We were in this uh, uh, committee where we were kind of rewriting constitution and bylaws and uh, some of the ways of doing it. Is that as you're typing and your words that you're changing, you you basically strike through the word, right? You strike through, like, that word doesn't belong there anymore, but it's just stricken through. So if you're reading it, as is, you see a striked out word. You're supposed to tell yourself that doesn't belong there anymore. But the problem is, is that you see it. Well, this doesn't mean that. That means that the word was completely erased. It's gone. So that anybody in posterity goes back and reads that document, when they're reading, all they see is what's, what's been from the moment it was striked away, when it was gone. That's what he has done for you and me. So that sin that you committed last night, when you come in humbleness and you say, Jesus, I'm a sinner, will you forgive me of my sin? He forgives you of your your sin. And as far as he's concerned, it's not just strike through. He's not like, I'm gonna hold on to this for another week to see if you're really serious about forgiveness or really serious about repentance. It's gone. And that's hard for us to swallow sometimes. It's gone. Another word he uses is not count against and that's this idea of a debt that's been paid. The debt's no longer, like the debt that I had, I had this negative balance, the debt I had is no longer in my account. It's gone. It's gone. Now I think we understand that when we, when we think about grace and forgiveness, we understand that my, you know, when Jesus, what Jesus did is he paid my debt. And I think how we think about it, because we have to think in human terms of this, when we think about Jesus paying my debt, I'm thinking about a negative ledger balance that I have. And Jesus dies on a cross for my sins, and my, not my debt's been canceled. And so, my head, I think, zero balance now. And that's good news that it was minus one million whatever, <laughs> and now it's zero. That's good news if that's all the news that there was. But there's even better news because the New Testament talks about the righteousness of Christ being imputed into our account. And so not only is it a zero balance, but now because I have given my life over to Jesus Christ, now his righteousness actually gets deposited into my account. And now I walk around with all this wealth. I didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it. I did nothing for it except Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. And I need you. And this is what makes grace so scandalous because to us in our human world, that seems unfair. But it's precisely what God has done for you and me. Not only do we have a zero balance, we have the entire riches of Christ in our account. And I want you to experience that. I want you to experience that. It's been important for me as a pastor to not use words as weapons in this message series, particularly in this message series. I've felt that way. I don't want to use words that would wound, make you feel shame or fear or guilt. That's not really how I wanted to approach this. And I get that because I think the church has done that. Church has wounded a lot of people by using words, by categorizing and making people feel uh, less than. What I find in Scripture is that the Bible tells us it's God's kindness that leads to repentance, not God's anger. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And so I want to say something here, some truth to you and I'm not saying it in anger, and I'm not saying it in frustration. Just as a pastor that really wants to see wholeness and healing and hope in people's lives, I just don't know how much time we have left before we have to give account for our sin. I don't know that we think about that very much. Like we go to church, and we attend, and we're like, yeah, I know I'm not doing right, but you know, one day I'll get it all figured out. One day I'll fix it all. One day I'll make it right. I just don't know how much time we actually have before we have to give account. And you might say to yourself, well, when that day happens, well, then I'll just, you know, I'll make my case with the Lord. And It'll be too late. It'll be too late. David talks about this in verse six. He says, therefore, let, let the faithful pray let the faithful pray to you while you may be found. So it's like he makes this statement. This, while you, as if there's a moment where he may not be found. That's hard for me to believe that there's any ever a moment where God may not be found. But I think David is talking about sin here. And he's saying that we all are sinners and we have an opportunity. God gives us opportunities to surrender our lives to him. And so when you have that opportunity, do it while he may be found. Like the rise, the waters are rising, you know? Now, I think sometimes what happens is that we want to put things off. Like, I've done it, I know. But here's my experience, that when put off things spiritually, what happens oftentimes is that we never get to it. Hardness of heart kind of settles in. Then in verse 11, he says, Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all of you who are upright in heart. And so he ends with this call to rejoice. And so this psalm, is I think addressing two groups of people, and we are all in this room represented, every single one of us, belong in one of these two groups of people. If you think you don't, you do, okay? We all are in one of these two groups. We're either uh, this group right here. Um, I'm gonna try to make some room on my table for this. Um, We're just a bunch of broken pieces. Like, this represents my recent divorce. This represents my addiction to pornography. This represents that um, I've fallen out of love with my wife and I'm seeing somebody else. And I can go on. And this is where we are. We're just a bunch of broken pieces. And we could try to put it all together and piece it. Try to figure out how to make it look right. You know, it doesn't work very well. And so I think what this psalm is trying to tell you and I, if this is where you are, is just surrender these broken pieces to him. He knows you're broken. You can't hide that from him. He already knows that. He already knows that you, what, you view pornography. He already knows that you're cheating. He already knows that. You can't hide it from him. What you can do is surrender to him. And desperately, desperately plead for wholeness. Desperately ask him to step in. And he'll do that. So there's that group of people. And then there's this other group. That's this vase that we put together earlier this week. It's not a pretty, not a vase, it's a pitcher. Not a pretty pitcher. Um, It's, uh, you know, I look at it up close. It's got a lot of glue, residual residual glue that shouldn't be there. I'm sure the guys that do kintsugi, they don't do it this way. (laughs) It's got my fingerprints on it. Earlier, uh, I was talking about this to somebody and it just dawned on me. It's got my fingerprints on this picture. And I realized that that's exactly what God has on your life. His fingerprints, what he puts you back together. And what we want to do is we want to hide all this. We don't want anybody to see the cracks, but these cracks precisely represent the grace of Jesus in your life. Now you can choose to stay here. You can choose to say this is too much. I'm not going to reveal. I'm not going to let anybody know. Or you can choose for him to put you back together. It's a choice. That's what this psalm is inviting us into. I'm going to ask us to stand. I'm going to stand in Cedar Rapids and Wilson as well. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to end this way. Time is kind of flying by us, but we're going to have prayer teams here on the left and the right. And um, look, don't leave this place today. Do not leave this place today. Without surrendering, without surrendering the broken pieces to him. Whatever those might be, they don't have to be as dramatic as some kind of horrible sexual sin. It could just be a way you're thinking about yourself. And maybe God just doesn't want you to think that way about yourself any longer. If you are this, you've been made whole and you're very conscientious of it. The one thing I want to say to you is, Stop living in guilt and shame. Stop living in guilt and shame. You've been made whole. And what's in your life, what you see in your life, it's those lines, that's His grace all over you. Stop living in guilt and shame. You should not live in guilt and shame if you have been made whole by the power of Jesus Christ. So, either you're broken. And you need wholeness, or you're whole, and you need to live, live free. That's a challenge for us this morning, amen? Let me pray for us. Father, we just want to thank you, God, because we know that you're here. We know that you're speaking. Lord, I want to speak, Father, to those individuals in this room that their lives are broken. Maybe they're embarrassed about it. Maybe they feel a little shame about it, Lord God. Maybe it's not even something that they did themselves, but it's been done to them, and they still feel the shame and the guilt of it, Lord. I just ask, Father, that you give them the courage today to surrender those broken pieces to you and let you start the process of restoring their life to wholeness. Lord, in this room, we are all people with hands raised up. We are all people that are not going to let anybody walk alone. So, Jesus, we ask that you right now, Holy Spirit, begin to stir hearts, move people back to you, Jesus. Do not let them, Father, walk out of this place without surrendering. Holy Spirit, touch us, heal us, make us whole. In the name of Jesus.